Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 348. Today's big Bible questions are, what did Jesus mean by today you will be with me in paradise, and should Christians insult the devil? Well, a happy and blessed Wednesday to you, dear friends. Today we read 2 Chronicles 9, Zephaniah 1, Luke 23, and the Epistle of Jude. Two questions today, one of which represents one of the greater mysteries of the Bible. Let's tackle the shorter question first and read the letter of Jude, where we will find out the tiniest bit about a dispute that the archangel Michael had with Satan over the body of Moses, Moses, which is itself quite a mystery, but we aren't covering it today because honestly the Bible just says very, very little about this incident beyond what Jude has for us. So let's read Jude verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are the called, loved by God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Dear friends, although I was eager to write you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth, They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only Master and Lord. Now, I want to remind you, although you came to know all these things once and for all, that Jesus saved the people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not keep their own position but abandoned their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains and deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns committed sexual immorality and perversions and serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. In the same way, these people, relying on their dreams, defile their flesh, reject authority, and slander glorious ones. Yet, when Michael the archangel was disputing with the devil in an argument about Moses' body, he did not dare utter a slanderous condemnation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme anything they do not understand, and what they do understand by instinct, like irrational animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them! For they have gone the way of Cain, have plunged into Balaam's error for profit, and have perished in Korah's rebellion. These people are dangerous reefs at your love feasts as they eat with you without reverence. They are shepherds who only look after themselves. They are waterless clouds carried along by winds, trees in late autumn, fruitless, twice dead and uprooted. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shameful deeds, wandering stars for whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. It was about these that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, Look, the Lord comes with tens of thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly concerning all the ungodly acts they have done in an ungodly way, and concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. These people are discontented grumblers, living according to their desires. Their mouths utter arrogant words, flattering people for their own advantage. But you, dear friends, remember what was predicted by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They told you in the end time there will be scoffers living according to their own ungodly desires. These people create divisions and are worldly, not having the Spirit. But you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. 
Have mercy on those who waver, save others by snatching them from the fire. Have mercy on others, but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able, to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. So Jude is warning the church about a certain group of, well, people, he calls them. Maybe they're false pastors, because one time he calls them shepherds. Maybe they're some kind of leaders. But these people act very spiritual, but they don't have the Holy Spirit, and they talk a big game. In fact, they talk such a big game that they slander the devil and other angels or uh, angelic beings or heavenly beings, a practice that Jude warns us is very dangerous and inappropriate. Now, I've been in a few churches and at a few conferences where uh, the people started, you know, really stepping out and and talking trash against the devil, I guess is the way to put it. I've heard songs saying about how the devil is under our feet, and I've seen people in a church setting like jump around stamping their feet uh, on the devil's head kind of sort of thing, like the devil is some sort of wimp that cowers in the presence of true Christians. I, of course, am familiar with the Romans passage where it talks about Jesus putting Satan under our feet in the future, but dear friends... Satan is incredibly powerful, and we learn here in Jude that even the archangel Michael, who is vast in power, does not bring slanderous accusations against the devil personally, but relies on the power of God, saying, the Lord rebuke you. So too should we. Let us not blaspheme that which we don't understand and that which dwarfs our own power, Let the Lord rebuke the enemy of our souls and let us rest and hide in the shadow of the Almighty. I'm not sure many Christians heed Jude's warning these days. Of course, I'm not sure many Christians have the uh, boldness to to slander heavenly beings uh, and Satan himself, but there does seem to be a strong warning here in this particular epistle that we should pay attention to. Next topic, Luke chapter 24. Three depicts the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, and we see here that Jesus is suffering ignominy upon insult upon torture. Passersby wag their tongues at the King of Kings, as does the Roman executors, and even one of the thieves himself rightly being executed for his crimes. The other thief, however, does not join in in the railing against Jesus, and thus Jesus pronounces an amazing promise to that thief. So let's read about it in Luke chapter 23, verse 1. Then the whole assembly rose up and brought him before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You say so. Pilate then told the chief priests in the crowds, I find no grounds for charging this man. But they kept insisting. He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee, where he started even to hear. When Pilate heard this, he asked if the man was a Galilean. Finding that he was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem during those days. Herod was very glad to see Jesus. For a long time, he had wanted to see him because he'd heard about him, was hoping to see some miracle performed by him. So he kept asking him questions, but Jesus did not answer him. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. 
Then Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt, mocked him, dressed him in bright clothing, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Previously, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the leaders, and the people, and said to them, You have brought me this man as one who misleads the people, but in fact, after examining him in your presence, I have found no grounds to charge this man with those things you accuse him of. Neither has Herod, because he sent him back to us. Clearly, he has done nothing to deserve death, therefore... I will have him whipped and then release him. Then they all cried out together, Take this man away! Release Barabbas to us! He had been thrown into prison for a rebellion that had taken place in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate addressed them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What has this man done wrong? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty, therefore I will have him whipped and then release him. But they kept up the pressure, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified, and their voices won out. So Pilate decided to grant their demand and release the one they were asking for, who had been thrown into prison for rebellion and murder, but he handed Jesus over to their will. As they led him away, they seized Simon, a Cyrenian who was coming in from the country, and laid the cross on him to carry behind Jesus. A large crowd of people followed him, including women who were mourning and lamenting him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. Look, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the women without children, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Follow us into the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others, criminals, who were also led away to be executed with him, when they arrived at the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, because they do not know what they are doing. And they divided his clothes and cast lots. The people stood watching, and even the leaders were scoffing, (laughs) He saved others. Let him save himself if this is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also mocked him. They came offering him sour wine and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. An inscription was above him. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him. Don't you even fear God since you are undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was about noon now, and darkness came over the whole land until three, because the sun's light failed, the curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Saying this, he breathed his last. When the centurion saw what happened, he began to glorify God, saying, This man really was righteous. All the crowds that had gathered for this spectacle, when they had saw what had taken place, went home striking their chest. But all who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. There was a good and righteous man named Joseph, a member of the Sanhedrin, 
who had not agreed with their plan in action. He was from Arimathea, a Judean town, and he was looking forward to the kingdom of God. He approached Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Taking it down, he wrapped it in fine linen and placed it in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever been placed. It was the preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed along and observed the tomb and how his body was placed. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Paradise is a most curious word that our Lord uses here on the cross. Is this simply another word for heaven, or is Jesus saying something different? That's a question that has been discussed and debated for almost 2,000 years. For instance, Ephraim the Syrian, who is a church father from the 300s AD, seems to equate paradise with the Garden of Eden. He said, Adorned in the robe of Christ, the thief is now welcomed into the garden in Adam's place. Jesus has restored the paradise lost by Adam by stretching out his arms on the cross and defeating Satan. From the tree of the cross, Adam hears of his return to Eden. And there actually might be good reason for Ephraim to think this, because the Greek word here for paradise seems to mean something akin to a park or a garden kind of place. Now, the early church father Augustine takes a bit more of a nuanced view. He says, It remains then, if the words, thou, This day thou shalt be with me in paradise, were spoken in a human sense, paradise would be understood to be in hell where Christ was to be that day in his human soul. However, Christ may be assumed to have said, This day shalt thou be with me in paradise in a much easier sense and one free of all these subtleties if he said it not as man but as God. Manifestly, the man Christ was to be that day in the tomb as to his body, in hell as to his soul, but as God, Christ himself is always everywhere present for he is the light which shines in the darkness although the darkness does not comprehend it. He is the strength and wisdom of God which it is written that it reaches from end to end mightily and orders all things sweetly, and that it reaches everywhere because of its purity, and nothing defiled comes to it. Therefore, wherever paradise may be, whoever is blessed is there with him who is everywhere. In other words, what Augustine or Augustine is saying, that likely Jesus, when saying, today you will be with me in paradise, spoke as God, because as God, he would be omnipotent, although as human, he would be going to what Augustine or Augustine labels as hell. The Bible would call Hades, the place of the dead. Um, and uh, so it's, it gets pretty interesting to read these early church fathers talk about this particular passage. Clear as mud, right? Well, fortunately, the word that the Bible uses here for paradise, it's the Greek word paradisos. You see where we get our word paradise there. It's actually used in two other Bible passages, which is going to shine a little bit more light on the location of paradise and what exactly Jesus meant when he said it than perhaps some of our early church father friends. For instance, Paul uses this word in another mysterious passage in 2 Corinthians 12. He's talking about himself in the third person, which is interesting, but he's basically saying, I had this experience where I went to the third heaven, and I can't talk about it because God won't let me because it would make me prideful, but I need you to know that it happened. And in verse uh, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 3 and 4, he says, I know this man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows, 
was caught up into paradisos or paradise and heard inexpressible words which a human being is not allowed to speak. Also, Revelation chapter 2 verse 7 uses paradisos. It says, let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, this is Jesus speaking here, and he's talking about the tree of life in the paradise of God. And both those passages seem to give us a little bit more clarity. Paradise refers to the place that Paul was caught up to and can't really talk about, and also to the place where the tree of life is currently which is not the earthly garden of Eden, but apparently something like a heavenly garden of Eden, perhaps the Edenic garden like the tabernacle on earth also has a parallel in heaven. Regardless, it would seem that Jesus is simply saying to the thief that he would wake up next in paradise and that the presence of Jesus would be there. How that would happen in a time-space sense, given that Jesus was buried in the ground for three days and descended into Hades, is quite beyond me, but I believe it to be truth. I think, then, that that paradise is simply a different word for heaven, or it describes a particular part of heaven, since, again, the word seems to have a root um, meaning of garden or park, And since Jesus says in Revelation 2-7, he talks about the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, I think we can equate trees with parks. So maybe that's what Jesus is saying to the thief. I think that's our best, I don't want to say guess, because I think we're going a little bit more beyond a guess, but it's not quite a fact either. So I think that's our best uh, plus guess about what Jesus means here. He's talking about where people go in Christ who die. So I think it's actually a pretty big deal and a pretty interesting passage. I think this is talking about the intermediate state. Of course, Revelation is going to talk about a new heavens and a new earth. And perhaps when we get to those chapters towards the end of Revelation, we'll discuss that. But basically, I think that's what Jesus is saying to the thief on the cross you will be with me in a heavenly, paradise-like, garden-like, wonderful place. And uh, Ambrose of Milan is another early church father. He lived in the 300s, and he has a quote here that I think I can close up with. It says this, If paradise, then, is of such a nature that Paul alone, or one like Paul, could scarcely see it while alive and was still unable to remember whether he saw it in the body or out of the body, and moreover, heard words that he was forbidden to reveal, if this is true, how will it be possible for us to declare where paradise is when we haven't been able to see it? And even if we had succeeded in seeing it like Paul did, we would be forbidden to share with others. And again, since Paul shrank from exalting himself by reason of the sublimeness of the revelation, how much more ought we to strive not to be too anxious to disclose that which leads to danger by its very revelation? The subject of paradise should not, therefore, be treated lightly, says Ambrose. And I think there's probably some truth to that. Sounds like a great place. Sounds like a wonderful place to go. 
It will remain a bit of a mystery in our minds, but I think that uh, paradise is mostly pointing us to a heavenly understanding the way Jesus uses it to the thief on the cross. Well, let's continue. Second Chronicles chapter 9, verse 1. And this will be the ESV version because I'm reading it off the phone, because my phone, because the internet has just gone down while I was recording the podcast. So 2 Chronicles chapter 9, verse 1 in the ESV. Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon, she came to Jerusalem to test him with hard questions, having a very great retinue and camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from Solomon that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, and their clothing, his cupbearers, and their clothing, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, half the greatness of your wisdom was not told me. You surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your wives. Happy are those your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted you and set you on his throne as king for the Lord your God. Because your God loved Israel and would establish them forever, he has made you king over them so that you may execute justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great great quantity of spices and precious stones. There were no spices such as those that the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Moreover, the servants of Hiram and the servants of Solomon who had brought gold from Ophir brought algam wood and precious stones, and the king made from the algam wood supports for the house of the Lord, and for the king's house, lyres also, and harps for the singer. There never was seen the like of them before in the land of Judah. And King Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all that she desired, whatever she asked, besides what she had brought to the king. So she turned and went back to her own land with her servants. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold, beside that which the explorers and merchants bought. And all the kings of Arabia and the governors of the land brought gold and silver silver to Solomon. King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold, 600 shekels of beaten gold, and went into each shield. And he made 300 shields of beaten gold, 300 shekels of gold went into each shield, and the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. The king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with pure gold. The throne had six steps and a footstool of gold, which were attached to the throne. On each side of the seat were armrests and two lions standing beside the armrests, while twelve lions stood there, one on each end of a step on the six steps. Nothing like it was ever made for any kingdom. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. For the king's ships went to Tarshish with the servants of Hiram. Once every three years the ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom, and all the kings of the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present, articles of silver and of gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. 
And Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots and 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And he ruled over all the kings from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone, and he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah. And horses were imported for Solomon from Egypt and from all the lands. Now the rest of the acts of Solomon from first to last, are they not written in the history of Nathan the prophet and in the prophecy of Ahijah the Shilonite and in the visions of Iddo the seer concerning Jeroboam the son of Nebat? Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel forty years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father, and Rehoboam his son reigned in his place. Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 1 in the ESV. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal in the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord God is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated His guests, and on the day of the Lord's sacrifice I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traitors are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill, their gods shall be plundered and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end. He will make all of the inhabitants of the earth. Amen. And Lord, have mercy. Well, friends, may the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he cause his word to dwell in your heart. Good day to you and Godspeed.